Two and a Half Admins, episode 115. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Microsoft's Exchange team put up an advisory, use authentication policies to fight password spray attacks recently. And this is something I'd not heard about before, spray attacks. So instead of doing an old school brute force attack where you just try one username and then a bunch of passwords, which is pretty easy to block these days, the idea is you just try a bunch of different usernames and common passwords and you do it at such scale that eventually you get a few. Yeah, so the idea is that if trying different passwords to the same user five or ten times results in that account being locked out, the idea is just try one or two passwords and just lots and lots of different usernames as well and hope that you get some low-hanging fruit. It's a high-value style of attack because rather than just trying to hammer your way into a single account, a lot of the concept there is that you've got a database of dumped passwords that you know somebody with this username had this password on that site. So you can very rapidly try the whole lot at a particular target. See, do any of those people have accounts at this particular target? And if they do, are they dumb enough to be using the same password there as at the site that was compromised that you know you got the password dumped from? And Joe, I, I can tell you right now, the only reason that you hadn't heard of this attack is because you don't actually administer a mail server or ever look at the logs, because I guarantee you it's been very obvious for many years now that that's what attackers are doing. Yeah, especially if you see each different username only have one attempt, it's because they have a password they think it was. They weren't guessing at the password, they were just guessing, did somebody reuse this? You also get a lot of that if you run your own email domain and you have a wildcard meaning that you'll actually get email into your inbox from any username at your domain. Uh, you can just see who it is and you can you know, then sort that into folders or whatever, you know, build mm -hmm. message rules based on that. Or if a username that you used for one website you know, gets compromised and it starts getting a bunch of spam, you can just null route anything that comes into that username at your domain, that kind of thing. You very rapidly will start seeing some really weird names you've never heard of that you get just repeated spam for. And it's because, again, one of these password sprays happened. It's not necessarily a password spray in that case, it's an account spray. They try a known username and see, does the mail server accept it? And if it does, they go, oh, well, that's a valid user. And they add that to their list. And now you're, you know, forever getting like, you know, Alvin J. Proofrock <laughs> at yourdomain.com. You're like, where the heck did that come from? Yep. Well, there you go. It's, it's, it's another spray attack. Yeah. So Microsoft Exchange Team's uh, note here is that if a user doesn't need it, that you should disable basic authentication for SMTP and IMAP and only support the like OAuth 2 that they're trying to move towards. As they're doing this, they're trying to get completely away from basic auth and want you to disable it entirely. But in the meantime, they're like, only leave it on for accounts where you know it's on for a reason. And anybody who can use OAuth 2, you should have their account not able to use the other one so they wouldn't be vulnerable to this type of attack. Now, the thing that bothered me about the way this piece was written is basic auth, basic auth, basic auth, basic auth. And basic auth is not actually the problem. Passwords are the problem. It doesn't matter if you're using basic auth or if you're using you know, a, a better auth mechanism for passwords that includes encryption by default. There are several of those. All of those would present the same problems and be just as vulnerable to password spray attacks. What Microsoft is really saying here is disable 
password authentication. Right. They want to use OAuth 2 because it supports their two-factor mechanism and, you know, involves an actual pop-up from Microsoft's website coming up, even if you're using, you know, Thunderbird as your mail client. And it negotiates like a a long-term key to keep your machine authenticated, but without having to have a password that's actually stored in a config file that anybody could steal. Because God forbid we just use private public key authentication like SSH in the first place. That'd be too easy. Can't have it. Won't do it. Nope. Why has that not taken off? I think a lot of it just kind of comes down to laziness in the part of the security industry that interfaces with the regular consumer public. They assume it's going to be too complex to explain or that users won't keep up with it or what have you. But I just, I don't think that's valid. Users can't generally keep up with any authentication method. They can't keep up with passwords. They're not going to be able to keep up with keys either. They can't keep up with all this nonsense with OAuth 2 either. That's why in less secure environments, you know, you have these fallback mechanisms to unlock things when Joe and Jane Sixpack inevitably forget how to get into the locked door. And there's no reason that that can't work just as well for, you know, private key, public key stuff. What moving to private key, public key authentication would do is allow Joe and Jane Sixpack to do what they want to do in the first place, which is just have one secret that they can use everywhere. If you're doing private key, public key, you can do that because your public key is not a secret. Matter of fact, you don't even necessarily have to give that to every site. You know, you could have just a public clearinghouse where everybody dumps their pub key. And you say, hey, that's me, and you encrypt a message with your private key to prove it, and poof, you've got an account, and that's how you authenticate, and you can do the same thing with every website, and it will be fine, unless and until, of course, you get your private key compromised. But that's, A, it's more difficult to do, and B, the recovery is, the implications are really just no different than if you used your dog's birthday everywhere. Yeah, the thing that's most interesting thinking about that for Microsoft is that all the infrastructure for that is already there, right? Active Directory is already a certificate authority. It's already, you know, issuing a certificate to every machine on the network to prove the machine belongs to the network. There's no reason it couldn't also issue keys for users. This is reminding me, every time this has come up before, we get a bunch of feedback saying, well, in my country, usually some advanced European, non-English speaking country, we have smart cards and every citizen has this smart card which is a kind of hardware version of this if you do want to set something up like this or especially use it for ssh keys i've been using this tool called small step for a while and it's actually really nice for this and we'll do an article or a webinar or something on it at clara in the next couple of months well you know alan to your point about active directory already being certificate based i think That's a little bit of a red herring because for this to really work properly, you wouldn't actually want one specific person to be the one to have to give you, you know, the certificate. It would be better to run it the way SSH keys run. You generate a key pair and you upload the public key and, you know, you're the only one who has the private key and you work from that. You shouldn't need to get that from Microsoft because then that implies that you're probably going to have to get a different one from Apple and a different one from, I don't know, Chewy.com or wherever you buy your dog food. And like, that's not going to work. Uh, What you need is just for everybody to agree that, you know, yes, we will take a key pair in this format and then just go from there. And for those who aren't that familiar with key pair cryptography, really briefly, the big advantage here is that if you use the same private key and public key everywhere, you never actually share the private key. That only is yours. The public key isn't a secret. It can be published. You can advertise, hey, everybody, this is my public key. 
And that means that, you know, when inevitably some website where you go to talk about muscle cars or whatever gets compromised and, you know, their database is dumped, it does the attackers no good because they get your public key. Well, your public key already wasn't a secret. You can just be on Twitter and be like, hey, this is my public key. And that's actually a good thing for you to do. It just means more people can authenticate you when you want to be authenticated. So it's called asymmetric cryptography because there's these two keys. Your public key can be used to encrypt a message so that only the private key can read it. And the private key can sign a message where you can use the public key to prove that message could only have come from the person that has that private key. And then if both Jim and I have that, I can encrypt a message to Jim's public key and sign it with my private key. And then only Jim can decrypt it and he can be sure the message couldn't have come from anyone other than me. All in one fell swoop, I'm the only one who can read it, and I can verify that it truly did come from Alan, or at least somebody with Alan's private key. And if somebody has Alan's private key, whew, Alan's got a problem. They're basically Alan. Yeah, they're Alan now. <laughs> you are no longer Alan. Yeah. And the other nice thing about asymmetric crypto like that is you can encrypt to multiple public keys. So, uh, you know, this is how encryption a lot of messaging apps works. I'm going to send this message, and I'm going to encrypt it to Joe's key and Jim's key in one fell swoop. And those two can read it and nobody else can read it. And so this is underpinning all kinds of stuff we use every day, including the little lock icon in your browser for a website. It's, hey, this certificate comes from someone I trusted. And we, I can say, yes, for sure, Let's Encrypt says this is actually from somebody who owns this domain. And then the domain is, I'm really the server for paypal.com, not some other website. And it's signed and I know that I'm talking to the real PayPal, not something else. And you can have trusted entities, well-known trusted entities can sign keys to verify that that key does belong to the individual it's supposed to belong to. Usually that's going to be a better bet, like literally from your government than from, you know, like a Microsoft or what have you. Mm -hmm. And what that actually means is that, that government took some real world step to say, you really are the person who owns that key. And you're not just somebody who claims to be Alan Jude. Like, now nah, we know what that guy looks like. Uh, we know what his fingerprints are. And uh, he came in and he said, this is my key. And we verified physically that was him. So when you see this, we're saying, yeah, we, we truly do believe that's his key. And that can increase the trust that, yes, this really is a key that belongs to the actual Alan Jude and not just some jackass that created a key and said, I'm Alan Jude and it belongs to me. Yeah, and we have the same thing in the, the FreeBSD project with when we have a developer summit or something, meet up with a bunch of people. Here's my passport. I really am this person. Other people sign my key. And now maybe I've not met that person. But I've met three other people who say, yes, that's definitely the real so-and-so. We call that a key party. Yes. <laughs> we don't. It's a key signing party. Yes. <laughs> yes. A difference. key party is a very different yes, thing. Yes, uh, I, I get where you're going now. <laughs> Although, depending on the conference you're going to. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks, like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. 
Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And do send in your questions. And as I always say, the shorter the better. Okay, Martin says, I would be interested to hear what you guys think about certifications like LPIC or the certifications from the Linux Foundation. Now, this is something that comes up every six months to a year. So we've probably said all this before, but uh, go for it. Red Hat certs are the most widely recognized. That's usually going to be the best bet to get you through the door somewhere. I would love to recommend LPIC instead because it's more distro agnostic. However, I find that far fewer outfits are actually looking for or really know what an LPIC cert is. The best advice is don't get a cert just to get a cert. If there's a job that you want and they say X certification preferred, get that cert. Otherwise, I I really would not just blindly go cert hunting. Uh, You're more likely to just waste your time and money. They're not the best way to actually learn useful things. It's a way to get an interview. So if you're having trouble getting interviews and you would like to interview at a place that says, we like Red Hat certs, then get a Red Hat cert. Or if that place says, we like LPIC certs, get an LPIC cert. I agree that LPI is probably the best place to get certificates. They also even do the FreeBSD ones now, but they're not as in demand as the more specific ones like the Red Hat certs or Cisco certs and so on. So in general, very much agree with Jim that if what you're looking for keeps talking about a specific cert, then get that one. Otherwise, watch out. A lot of the, especially the other certs that you can get are mostly a money grab. Big thing to look at also if they publish it is stats about the cert. If the cert isn't 50% of the people that take this fail, then the cert doesn't actually mean very much. If 80% of the people that take the test pass it, it's not actually making sure that people know more than the average amount in order to be certified. I honestly don't think that matters much. It doesn't matter if most people do fail it. It still doesn't mean it's a good way to learn things. There are better ways to learn than crashing certs. Uh, The reason to get a cert is because that cert will help you get a job. If you don't know the cert will help you get the job, it's probably not a good idea to chase the cert. And if what you really want to do is learn, then learn. The learning will make it easier to get through the certification process later if you need to, Whereas getting through a certification process won't necessarily make learning useful things any easier. For sure. The cert is about being able to prove that you've learned something to a company and it's only useful if the company actually cares. And it's like Jim said, definitely not the way to go to learn something because it's usually pretty narrow and specific. And they're like, you've demonstrated you can do these concepts. It doesn't help you actually put them together like learning it more holistically would. You guys said something about it would get you through the first layer of HR. If the company says, we want this cert, then yes. If they're paying some third-party company that doesn't even understand what IT is to filter resumes by looking for keywords, it can help with that. Well, they don't have to be paying a third-party company like in many large environments. It's just their HR. Yeah, you got to get through HR, which might as well be the third-party company already and definitely doesn't understand anything about all this. 
even if the department doing the hiring is looking at the raw pile, if it's a hotly contested job and they've got a ton of applicants, if they've listed those certs as bullet points, then having that may get you to the top of the pile where you get more attention. But again, the goal is to get the interview. If you already don't have trouble getting interviews, you really don't need certifications. If you're having trouble getting interviews, that's when this makes sense. Once you get to the actual interview, you're really better off having done interesting things, which is the same thing I would say as far as like if you want to learn things. Pick something that you would like to do for a living and and learn how to do it. The way modern IT works, you generally can do exactly that. You know, if you want to work in web hosting, well, go rent yourself a Linode VM for five bucks a month and, you know, spin up Apache or Nginx and, you know, set up WordPress. Get done with WordPress? Okay, cool. Try Magento, you know, the shopping cart platform. Did that work? Fine. Try something different. Experiment with different databases on there. You know, do whatever the things are that you think might be interesting and learn how to do them. And when you're in an interview, you'll find that you can talk to the interview about the things that you've done. Better yet, as you're doing all this stuff, document it. Put stuff up on GitHub. Having like a a full set of like GitHub repos with interesting projects in them, that is absolutely something that is of interest and you can talk about and you can show interviewers. Whether or not it gets you the interview is another question, which, you know, now we're right back to the same thing again that I keep harping on, which is the certs are for if you have trouble getting interviews. Yeah, exactly. It comes down to if you want to learn something, that's what the home lab is for, even if your home lab happens to be a Linode or something rather than in your basement or, you know, even just VMs in your one laptop. But whatever it is, the the hands-on experience of practicing and having done it and being able to talk about the process or even just how you thought through the process, that's what makes me pick people when I'm doing interviews is the ability to actually describe to me their process or the experience of having done it and just also the initiative to have bothered to have done this to learn something rather than I only know what they taught me at my last job. Absolutely. And to be clear, the reason I specifically mentioned, you know, cheap VMs like at Linode is because there are a lot of people out there that would really like to get into the industry that don't necessarily have a giant pile of equipment to, you know, make a home lab that you can do a bunch of neat stuff on. And if you don't have that, it's okay. You don't have to figure out how to get a rack full of like cool gear to play with. You can just spend a very tiny amount of money to have an interesting play environment you can do this stuff in. And it's so quick and easy to spin up a VM and then just destroy it when you're done with it. And if you're using free tools, again, like GitHub, you know, to document what you did and to, you know, save code bases and all this kind of thing, then you have a record of what you did. You can literally spend five bucks, spin up a whole project, document the whole thing, make sure that your docs worked and get rid of it. You know, if you got done in a month, that cost you five bucks. And that's even if you're just destroying it and starting over. More likely, if you're if you're doing a bunch of things, well, then, you know, once you're done with it, you just reimage the same Linode and you just spend the same five bucks a month for however long. If you have a more ambitious project that needs multiple machines, you know, well, for that month, you know, you can maybe spend 20 bucks that month and have four of them. And maybe they'll let you set up a small cluster or whatever it is that you're interested in that you think is cool that you want to play with. If you want to get into, you know, cloud type stuff specifically, Well, Linode's still a great start, but you don't need to stick there either. There are a lot of providers. Try several of them. You know, if you want to get a job someplace that does a lot of AWS stuff, you have to be a little bit more careful here, but play around in the AWS free tier and, you know, learn what their infrastructure is like and how to work with it. Uh, If you want to work with Google Cloud, same deal. 
Yeah, and it's very much leveled the playing field where you don't have to be someone who has three spare machines in their basement to be able to do any of this stuff. Anybody can do it with, like we said, Amazon free tier or really low cost VMs or whatever. It makes it very easy. You have no excuse not to do it. And so showing that you took the initiative and actually did it. And especially, like Jim said, if you can show, here's a GitHub repo of some code I wrote so I can look at it and see what your style's like. But also, here's some documentation I wrote. I can read that and be like, okay, this person knows how to write documentation so that other people can read it at three in the morning and, and fix the thing without having to call this person or whatever. And like Jim said, if you threw the VM away, to avoid paying $5 a month when you weren't using it, but you have these instructions and you can stand it back up in a couple of minutes, that's exactly the kind of thing that a company's going to be looking for. And when you talk to someone who's got various certifications and qualifications, you can tell whether they've actually done the stuff that they're talking about or whether they've just learned it from a book and passed an exam. I mean, you can do that with anything in life, but even more so with IT. Like Knowing the theory of it is one thing, but if you can actually talk with experience, then that is going to be much more likely to get you the job than just having these certs and not having that experience. Yeah. And that's why, as Jim said, don't get the cert just for the sake of the cert, because it will not get you anything except for the bill for a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. I will also say, speaking personally, you know, I've interviewed a lot of candidates for a lot of jobs, some at my own company, some at client companies of mine. And when I get a candidate that wants to lead in the interview with talking about the certs they've got and, you know, they feel like they're making a statement with that and then they just kind of want to stop because, like, they want you to drink in the awesomeness of all these certs they have, that is a huge red flag to me. I actively don't want that person. I'm not telling you don't mention that you got certs, but be a little self-deprecating about it if you do. Mention them and then move on to interesting stuff that you can actually do pretty quickly. Because if you're talking to an interviewer that is actually a manager in the department that you're going to be working with, they're not going to be looking for somebody who can just get a cert and be like, okay, well, that's sorted then. I got the cert, so I'm awesome, and I'll get the job. I don't want that guy. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows, and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices, regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com slash 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Ben writes, Let's say I have a hybrid workplace with some people in the office and some people remote. I need a VPN and I want to use WireGuard. Which approach is better? One, the traditional VPN in approach, where remote machines peer with a public endpoint or bounce server, which nets traffic through to the LAN. Or two, a VPN only approach, where both remote and on-site machines peer with the public endpoint and the VPN is the LAN. 
For the sake of argument, assume our devices are spherical and we're not worried about printers or crafty devices that don't run WireGuard. So the first thing I want to tackle here is uh, Ben's first scenario was a VPN in approach, and he specifically mentioned a VPN that NATs traffic through the LAN, network address translation. And that's not something that you either need or want. That is something that's available with WireGuard or with OpenVPN or pretty much any VPN. You can use network address translation. The problem is that if you do that, everybody on the VPN appears to come from the same source IP address as far as the logging in all of your network applications. So if something bad happens, it's very difficult to tell who done it. Now, that's not something that you actually need at all. The traditional way that you would do this uh, with WireGuard or the OpenVPN so you've got a subnet for the LAN at the office, and you've got a subnet for the LAN at your house or the you know hotel or wherever you're connected, the, the remote location. What a lot of people don't realize is you also have a third subnet. Now, the third subnet is for the tunnel itself. So let's say that at home, you're 192.168.0.whatever. At the office, you're 192.168.5.whatever. Now, across your VPN, you'll have a third subnet, and we'll call that 10.0.0. So what happens is you get a 10.0.0 IP address for your machine at the house when you connect to the VPN. The VPN also instructs your machine that the route to 192.168.5, which you'll recall is the office subnet, goes through that interface. So now when you go to ping a machine in the office, what happens is the packet goes across the tunnel, the 10 dot. When it reaches the machine in the office, it comes from that user's specific tunnel IP address, which in this case we'll say is 10.0.0.3. Now the office also has a local VPN endpoint, which we'll call 192.168.5.1. So the office router knows if it has traffic that's destined for anything on that 10.0.0.0 subnet, that should go through the local endpoint at 192.168.5.1. And because it knows that, when the machine in the office tries to reply and it hits the router, it gets routed down to the local endpoint and goes across the tunnel and gets where it needs to. Now, in this case, you don't actually know anything about the user's LAN because the user's LAN doesn't come into it at all. From the office's perspective, everything from the user's machine comes directly from the tunnel subnet. Where it gets a little bit more complicated is if you want a true full site-to-site -site VPN. Now, for the most part, this looks the same, except that in this case, you've got a single endpoint at either end, and your router on both LANs knows that anything that's destined either for the tunnel subnet or for the other side's local subnet should go through its local endpoint. So now you actually can reach every machine at either side from either side, but there's no network address translation required. Yeah, the thing that's interesting about WireGuard is that it's a layer 3 VPN, so it only does IP and above, whereas some other VPNs are layer 2 and they pass Ethernet packets, where you can basically bridge the VPN with your other network and, and kind of extend the LAN across the VPN, which is a little bit more like what he's describing in number 2, but not the same. And the big difference there is whether there'll be ARP requests going back and forth across the VPN. And with WireGuard, there won't be. But this routed way is much better and much cleaner and avoids a bunch of broadcast traffic going across the network through all the VPNs when you don't only need them to. You know, you make sure that all the Windows laptops aren't trying to blast out, hey, here's the files I have to share over your VPN all the time. It's also inordinately easier to set up. Because if you, if you want to do a bridged VPN where you know, the machine has like an office IP address directly, 
you have to get into really weird protocols. Like normally you would do that with an IPsec VPN. I used to see these a lot in the late nineties and very early two thousands. And what's, what's the protocol, Alan? Is it GRC? GRE. GRE. Gateway router encapsulation. Yeah. yeah. You've got to set up GRE protocol pass through and it is just an absolute nightmare to get right. And frequently you'll discover that if you don't have exactly the same hardware as a router on both sides, it just won't work no matter how theoretically correct you're trying to set up the configuration in those routing devices. It is possible to do it with OpenVPN, but you have to specifically opt for the Ethernet style interface rather than just the IP tunnel style interface. And it will be a lot more likely to break when you do. There will just be a lot more traffic going back and forth that you don't actually need. And so the fact that WireGuard does it this way is mostly a win, but it does mean that certain things that depend on broadcast traffic to find things like maybe some weird printer protocols or like uh, Wi-Fi printing or something might not work, but you said, don't worry about that. So, yeah. Uh, And to be clear, uh, (laughs) in a perfect world, the only issue would be the increased traffic, you know, from all the broadcast stuff that went across both sides and just general chatter that really doesn't need to leave the subnet. But in the real world, I'm telling you from hard one experience, the ton tap adapters are quite buggy and they are far more likely to break <laughs> if, if you're doing things on layer two rather than just layer three with OpenVPN specifically. Right. So ton is the layer three version. Tap is layer two version. And then I guess his question about the VPN only approach. Obviously, the downside of that is every machine, uh, even on the LAN, having to connect to the VPN endpoint. And that might just be a lot more configuration than it's worth. Whereas if all you have to configure for the the type one that Jim described is the router, the default gateway, the router on both sides to know, hey, any traffic going to this 10.0.0 subnet needs to be forwarded to the LAN IP address of our WireGuard machine, then that's all the configuration you need. And even if you just have a little Linksys or, or uh, TP-Link or something router at home, there's a little interface to add one subnet, route it to here, and that's all you got to do to make it work. The other thing I'll mention is if you're thinking of a VPN-only situation where like nobody's allowed to talk to anybody unless everybody's on the VPN, the first problem with that is that's going to fall on its face the minute you you get to dealing with like a network printer or, you know, a security camera or some other embedded device you can't load arbitrary software on. Now you're back to having to try to figure out how to bridge, you know, between the networks and you're back to square one. The other thing I'll mention is if that is still an approach that you find very interesting, neither WireGuard nor OpenVPN should be your first go-to. If you want to look at the idea of setting up an everybody's on the VPN style network, I would highly recommend investigating Nebula. The big difference between Nebula and something like WireGuard is, uh, you know, WireGuard is peer-to-peer. Effectively, OpenVPN really is as well. Uh, You can talk about like hub and spoke, but the point is everything has to go through a central point. Whereas if you set up a Nebula VPN, Nebula is actually a mesh VPN. Peers can connect to one another individually without needing to go through a separate space. And that means that, for example, if you've got a laptop and sometimes that laptop is in the house and sometimes it's out with you on the road in a hotel, wherever, but you use Nebula for everything for your local infrastructure. Like if you want to go to, let's say your local NAS, then you're using the Nebula IP address. You're just ignoring the LAN basically. Well, when you take your laptop out on the road, it's automatically going to go through the internet to get to your office as it needs to. But when you bring that laptop back into the office or home office where the the NAS is, it no longer is going out to the internet and coming back in. It just goes straight to that device. 
there is no C, it's just A and B, which is really, really cool stuff. Uh, that even means that when you've got you know a, a point-to-point between two locations where normally you might have set up you know a WireGuard or an open VPN you know server. So you're really going even across the internet, you're not going directly from this office to that office. You've got to go through, say, a VM at Linode or whatever, because you let's say you you maybe you can't set up port forwarding at both of your locations. So you need to initiate outbound connections. Well, with Nebula, even in that situation, rather than having a hub that all the data has to pass through, you can set up what it calls a lighthouse at a publicly available address, like, again, a Linode VM or what have you. Now, when you set up the lighthouse, what the lighthouse actually does is introduces those two machines that are both behind firewalls that don't have holes punched through them. And once it's introduced them, then they can use uh, stun tunneling and they can connect directly to one another without having to go through the lighthouse. And that can result in significantly lower latency and in some cases, higher throughput for that actual connection between those two machines that are both behind firewalls that don't know and don't care about them. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.